Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. My guest on this week's show is an absolute sketch comedy legend. And no, I'm not being sarcastic. Pleased to meet you. Well, it certainly is a pleasure to meet you, Derek. (laughs) I'm sorry if I bothered you. Oh, no, you're not bothering me, Derek. Far from it. There's nothing I would rather do than just stand here and chat with you. You know, really get to know you. Look, I don't think there's any need to be sarcastic. Oh, I'm not being sarcastic. No. This is just a little speech impediment. I can't help it. Okay, I've obviously said or done something wrong to upset you. I'm just going to apologize and be on my way. No, no, no. Please stay. It's true. I've talked this way all my life. (laughs) It's made things very difficult for me. Yeah, right. Hey, where are you going? Come back. I really want to be your friend. I'm so lonely. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was a sketch from the very first season of Kids in the Hall. While the casts of Saturday Night Live, Mad TV, and other sketch shows evolve over the years, there have only ever been the same five members of the Kids in the Hall. Kevin McDonald, Bruce McCullough, Mark McKinney, Scott Thompson, and my guest on today's show, Dave Foley. Dave has had a very busy year. First, he reunited with the four other kids for a long-awaited sixth season of their iconic sketch show on Amazon Prime Video. Those eight new episodes were accompanied by a really great two-part documentary called Comedy Punks about the group's rise and near fall after the disastrous release of their 1996 movie Brain Candy, which I maintain is still hilarious, despite what both critics and audiences had to say at the time. And now Dave is the narrator for all 10 episodes of Vice TV's new docuseries, Dark Side of Comedy, which delves into the troubled lives of comedians like Chris Farley, Roseanne Barr, Richard Pryor, and previous Last Laugh guest, Maria Bamford. We started our conversation by talking about the acceptance speech he gave at the Hollywood Critics Association's TV Awards earlier this month, in which he jokingly thanked Amazon for, quote, ruining the planet. Here's me with Dave Foley. Yeah, well, thanks for doing this, and congrats on on winning that uh, HCA award uh, over the weekend for Kids in the Hall. That was was pretty cool. Thanks. Yeah, that was cool. It was startling. Yeah, I was. I I I'd spent the whole day. Prom. I spent uh, days promising my daughter we wouldn't win. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Because I said, "You come to the come to this thing with me. It'll be fun. We'll just we'll go. We'll meet. We'll just be in show business and schmooze, and it'll be fun." 
and we'll get a free dinner. But uh, I kept saying, but don't worry, I'm not going to win. Kids in the Hall never wins anything. <laughs> and then you were wrong. You won. It was a, it was kind of a strange category. You're up against like Harry Potter and John Stewart. And <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, yeah, there were so many people, so many people there that I thought would win. Uh, you know, Harry Potter, John Stewart, uh, South Park. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's good, good competition. And then of course you, you made it onto TMZ for, uh, for taking a shot at Amazon during your acceptance speech. Was that a, was that a surprise as well? Well, it's ridiculous. <laughs> we made jokes about Amazon all the way through the show. If anyone watched, you know, if anyone watched it, uh, which Amazon, <laughs> obviously whoever, whoever's working for TMZ didn't watch it. Yeah. Which Amazon, as I said, Amazon didn't even Amazon, not, not only did they not care that we were making jokes about them, they actually seemed to like it, you know, like they, they encouraged it, you know, and it's, yeah, it's <laughs> of all the companies that are ruining the world, I don't think Amazon is really one of them, but it's like, I, but it's like, as, as someone who's on Amazon, it's like, I constantly have to hear people, I would never subscribe to Amazon. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, I will never get Amazon prime, but you, but you buy stuff on Amazon, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I won't watch prime. Oh, there's a lot of good shows on there. Yeah, there are. the boys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Sorry, well, yeah. I want to talk about this uh, this new project that you're doing, uh, the dark side of comedy, um, where you're you're narrating. Um, how did you end up becoming the the narrator for this series? Uh, it was a complicated process where they asked me, and I said yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was but, it, what what yeah, appealed it was, to you about it? Um, well, I mean, I guess just because. Uh, uh, well, I guess comedy has been my life for, 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 uh, more than 40 years. And, uh, and I've certainly, uh, I've certainly seen a lot of the dark side of comedy over the years. And, um, you know, and a lot of the subjects in the show are people I knew, uh, you know, or know. Who stands out as, as someone that you, that you knew, uh, well at the time. Well, I, I'd say most of them weren't, like, weren't good friends, but all people that I knew in the business, people I, you know, I'd met socially and hung out with a little, you know, like Chris Farley, I, I knew and, uh, and liked quite a bit. I really liked Chris. Uh, we weren't close friends, but whenever I would see him, I'd always, you know, it would always be nice to see him. He, he would come down and visit news radio, you know, and, and I, you know, I, you know, would run into him around town. And, yeah, uh, I really, I really enjoyed that episode, um, and I, I learned a lot. Um, I didn't know the whole story about how he hosted SNL so close to to when he died and the role that that played in it. That was pretty fascinating. Yeah, it, well, that's that's around the time that he was coming around, hanging around our uh, news radio set too. It was about that same time, and you know, and and I met him back. I mean, I met him. I guess I met him first, like just after he'd done, where he'd done, uh, like he was in Wayne's World. And I remember, because I remember going up to him, uh, going up to him, and, and just saying, "Well, I gotta say, uh, I don't know if you know what a good actor you are." But as, like I said, when you when you play the straight roles and sketches, you know, you were such a good actor, and I was I was really impressed, you know. And he, as typical Chris way, just kind of got all kind of teary eyed and and you know did his usual. Oh no, I'm just fatty falls down, you know. So no, it's, it's so it's so never, sad. Yeah, I mean, and and imagining the the roles that maybe he could have been able to play later in his career if he had, you know, oh gotten God, his act yeah. together. Yeah, no, he's uh, yeah, he's definitely was I think way more talent way more talented in many more ways than I think people realized, you know, and I think I think this series kind of um, 
may reinforce the belief that many people have that you have to be damaged in some way to to be funny. Um, and I was curious what your take was on that. Do you do you relate to that? Do you do you feel like that's true that that you have to have some dark backstory in order to really be a, a successful comedian? I think sadly it's largely true for the comedians I like. For, you know, I'm the kind of comedy I like. It seems to come out of a darker place, and you know. And but it's, obviously it's not a, a 100% truism because the great one of the greatest comedians of all time is Bob Newhart, uh, and uh, there isn't a less damaged human being on the planet than Bob Newhart. You know he's like a completely balanced and lovely man. Um, so no, obviously you don't you don't have to be damaged to be funny. Uh, it it just seems to it seems to be what breeds the kind of the kind of comedy I'm attracted to more often. Mm -hmm. you know? And what and what about you know your own backstory? Which obviously we don't we don't get an episode about you in this series. But um, were there things in <laughs> no, your no, in your childhood and history that that you think would would fit the bill? Not just my childhood. My God, my adult year, um, my recent history. I could have easily. I I you know I think I came. I've come very close to being a subject of this series. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the, over the last you know twenty years. So I definitely, I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad I'm, you know, I'm glad I'm still alive, you know, and still, you know, still working. But there were, there were moments when you, when you felt like you could have gone another way. Uh, oh my God. Yeah. I mean, there was a, like uh, a little over seven years ago, I wound up in an ICU with this head trauma, uh, from passing out drunk in downtown LA, uh, you know, and smashing my head open, um, you know. Uh, you know, that was, there, that was a dark time. So I definitely, you know, can relate to it, you know, and I'm lucky I got through it, you know, um, you, that you was, know, that I'm, was really a big turning point for you. I know you stopped, uh, stopped drinking, doing everything after that. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and luckily uh, I was lucky the head trauma actually <laughs> seemed to re, re reorganize my brain a little and that I not only did I stop drinking, I stopped I stopped having an urge to drink, which was even more important. And that was purely, I think, uh, neurological damage <laughs> that turned out to be positive. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty unique experience. Well some people have a head injury and suddenly they can play the piano or do photorealistic paintings. <laughs> um like right away. And uh which would have been a lot cooler than just not 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 wanting a drink, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um well, I would love to get into sort of your uh, your comedy origin story um, and going back to the the early days of Kids in the Hall, which there was this you know really great documentary that you guys put out along with the new season, um, which goes into a lot of it. But um, you know, for anyone who hasn't gotten a chance to see that, can you talk about the the early days of that group when the the live show was really starting to to blow up and and what that was like for you guys? Sure, yeah. Well, there's well, Kids in the Hall is a pretty good example of of a bunch of very damaged people finding <laughs> each other and doing comedy. Uh, you know, I think most of us have most of us grew up in the houses of alcoholics, you know, or abusive parents in some way. Um, but yeah, we uh, yeah, it was uh, yeah, we just kind of all we all met through improv. Uh, the improv scene in Canada, which was uh, I'm, like I met Kevin at a Second City workshop, and then we started doing theater sports together. And through theater sports, we met, you know, uh, Mark and Bruce and the troupe they were in at the time. Um, you know, and and that's how our, that's how we all met. And then our two troops merged, and then you know, like 
a bunch of people left the troop and and then Scott came in and then we couldn't get Scott out. Uh, <laughs> so it became the five of us. Like when Scott came in, you know, uh, and it became five of us, it started to really gel at that point. Uh, I mean, that's what it became, the kids in the hall. And uh, and it and it took a while. It took, a, it took about a year of doing constant shows. Like we did a new show every week uh, of all like an hour of new material every week for a long, long time. Yeah. And that's a, uh, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, but after a while it started to get an audience and, and suddenly the, you know, we suddenly had these packed houses and line up like, you know, our show was supposed to start at, you know, I think nine o'clock, but I think it rarely started before 10 and we had, um, uh, and we had uh, and we would have audiences lined up around the block, like going at like five o'clock in the afternoon, um, and that, you know which we were stunned by. Um, and it was all just word of mouth. What do you think? Do you, do you feel like you understand it now, or what do you think it was that people were responding to? I think we were just doing something new. Uh, we didn't really know know what it was at the time, but it it just seemed like we were, we were doing a kind of comedy that nobody had seen, and. You know, comedy had, you know, comedy had become very pol- uh, at that point in the uh, the '80s had sort of become kind of polite and and, and a business venture, um, and and we were kind of doing something that was a little more punk and and uh, rude. We're closed. Hello, I uh, want you to tell me where a shoe store is because I want to look for a pair of shoes and buy them. May have. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'd love to be of assistance to you, but I'm afraid I speak no English. Pardon? Ah, I see by the expression on your face that you're confused by my statement. Perhaps you doubt its veracity, but let me assure you, I speak not a word of English. Oh, what are you talking about, huh? You see... Everything that I'm saying to you, I've learned to speak phonetically. As to the meanings of the individual words or the percumbent rules of syntax, I haven't a clue. Why don't you just shut up and tell me where the shoe store is, huh, you jerk? Allow me to reiterate, I speak no English. It was pretty early on, I believe, that you caught the attention of the SNL talent scouts who came up to Toronto and, um, and... tried to check out your show what what's the uh can you tell the story of what happened when when they uh came calling yeah well we decided to do like a best of show and we decided to do it in a theater to make it classy um uh not really very classy uh um but we just thought we yeah so we booked a theater run and we were doing a like a best of we took what we thought were all the best sketches we'd come up with over the year and uh put them into a show and uh and as luck would have it, we got a we got a really a rave review in uh, the Globe and Mail, which is Canada's national newspaper, um, by a guy named Ray Conalog wrote a uh, this really great review of us, and uh, so the SNL scouts uh, saw that, and actually it was it was actually Yvonne Fassin, who was at that point vice president of late night programming at NBC, and later went on to become the head of uh, programming at CBC Canada. Um, he called uh, the, the casting people for Silent Life and said, you should go see... He, he actually came to see our show himself. And he said, told the cast people, you should go see these guys for Saturday Night Live. And then... Uh, uh, and uh, they didn't. Uh, <laughs> they didn't come... They didn't actually come to the show, but what they did do is they sent people up to audition us. They sent up Al Franken, 
and uh, I think it was Al Franken, and I think Jim. I think I, I remember it as being maybe Jim Downey. Uh, Kevin says it was uh, Tom Davis, but I don't think Tom Davis was there. Uh, I think, but Al Franken was definitely there, and uh, and uh, uh, Dave Thomas from SCTV uh, was there, and we did like our our whole show in an empty Rivoli back room uh, for for the, for these you know comedy legends. Uh, and, and at the end of it, you know, after, after a while they, you know, they talked about it and they, they decided they hired Mark and Bruce to be apprentice writers in the 85 season of Saturday Night Live. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I learned all of this, you know, watching the, the documentary and I, you know, it is, it was this kind of moment where they were, it was almost like SNL was breaking up the kids in the hall, um, by, by taking two of you away. Is that what it felt like at the time? Yeah, oh, definitely. We, I mean, we definitely thought that was the potential, uh, but we were ha- we were really happy for Mark and Bruce, and we also thought, well, this could be good for all of us. Maybe they can, you know, if they do well, maybe they'll bring more of us down, and uh, you know, or or maybe we'll be able to, you know. And then then it turned out uh, that uh, that they weren't getting any of their stuff on the show, <laughs> so they were they were getting frustrated, and then uh, and they also had a week off every three weeks. So, uh, so on their weeks off, they would fly back to Toronto and we would write a show and put it on the way we used to. So we would do shows. So we kept doing, so we wound up continuing to do shows and they kept getting even more popular. And, you know, and and through that, and through the 85, 86 year of Saturday Night Live, we had, you know, like, like we used to like, like Catherine uh, O'Hara and her sister, Mary Margaret and Robin Duke used to come to like, they used to come to the show all the time. And uh, and Marty Short came, started coming down to see the shows, and Joe Flaherty, um, and uh, and they all started recommending us to Lauren directly. And you know, they said, you know, those two guys you got on your staff there—they have this troupe you should see. Yeah, they're actually really funny. <laughs> yeah, even and though you don't so, put their sketches on the show. Yeah, so Lauren, so I, so then Lauren flew up to Toronto to see a Rivoli show. And, uh, and he actually went to a real show instead of making you perform to him in an empty room. Yep, he sat there in a in a in a way too crowded, like literally, like way beyond fire marshal's regulations, uh, un un air conditioned uh, back room. Um, and uh, yeah, and he sat through a like an, an hour long show, and uh, and at the end of it, he you know he. He, it was him that decided that the kids in the hall was something that shouldn't be broken up. Yeah. No, I mean, he's really, he's really responsible for bringing it to TV, right? Bringing it to TV and keeping us together. Uh, we wouldn't have stayed together if it was, you know, I don't think if it wasn't for Lauren. Uh, you know, it was his, it was he, he's the one that said this was something special and it would be, he said it would be, a, it, as a lover of comedy, he thought it would be a bad thing to break us up. So, because he, we would have all gone, like if whoever he would have, whoever he <laughs> had pulled for Saturday Night Live, we they would have gone, you know. And of course, uh, Mark McKinney eventually did make the jump to the SNL cast, but that was much later, right? Yes, much much later. Yeah, after after our show wrapped up. Yeah. Yeah. Were you were you surprised when he uh, when he did that? No, because he was the only one who really wanted to keep doing our show. He was the only one who really wanted to keep doing sketches. The rest of us were kind of exhausted and our, uh, just, we were just, we couldn't, I think the rest of us were, 
were just horrified at the thought of trying to write any more sketches at that point. You know, <laughs> and he so was like, doing he it was for, like, bring it on. Um, yeah, we've been doing it for four years at the Rivoli before we did a, you know, uh, before we had a TV show. Um, I'm, I mean, I really grew up watching the uh, the reruns on Comedy Central. Like, I think a lot of people of my generation and most people, just, yeah. Uh, and the show, you know, meant so much to me. Um, I was telling my dad that I was having you on the podcast, and he immediately brought up the uh, Citizen Kane sketch as a <laughs> as his favorite and, and an all time classic. Um, and that just feels like one of those sketches that is it's almost like a who's on first uh, at this point of of um, you know how how fundamental it is what you guys were doing there. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, Mike Myers actually compared it to Who's on First too. I think. Yeah. Well, Mike, Mike even went so far as to say he liked it better. Oh, yeah, well. <laughs> so, so that was like very high praise. Yeah. And that's, I love that sketch because that's, that's just pure me and Kevin enjoying just playing off each other. And, and it took us, it took, literally took as long to write as it takes to perform. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. It was like, it was written in one, one first draft pretty much, uh, very fast. I, I saw a great movie last night. Yeah, it was on. It was on the Late Show. It was um, uh, uh, oh, what was it called? It, it's a classic. It's a real. It's a classic. It's um, uh, oh, I hate this. I hate it when this happens. Well, what was it about? Uh, it's about this uh, newspaper tycoon, and he's dead, and everybody's telling stories sure. about him, and it's it Citizen Kane. No, that's not it. No, 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 no. But it's something like that. It's uh, it's um. Uh, okay, who was in it? Um, Orson Welles is in it. Okay. And it's. And this is called... Citizen Kane. It's, it's Citizen Kane. No, that isn't it. That isn't it. But it's, 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 it's you're not far from it. It's uh. uh who else was in it? Oh, um, uh, I don't know. I was was uh, Joseph Cotton in it? What else has he been in? Uh, uh, the, the, the Third Man, the Magnificent Ambersons. Oh, the Magnificent Ambersons. Yes, yes, yes. He was in it. Yes. Oh, that's one of my favorite Orson Welles movies. Well, but this is definitely Citizen Kane. Then you're talking about Citizen mm. Kane. No, 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 but it's, it's something like that. And I also have to tell you that even though it is a, um, a divisive thing, that the Brain Candy movie for me was, was also huge. And I, I absolutely loved it and watched it over and over again um, when it yeah. came out. And, um, you know, I didn't realize, uh, you know, that it wasn't the critical and financial success that that maybe you guys would have wanted because from my perspective no, it was just it a was, hilarious on the other hand, movie a critical and financial failure oh well yeah so yeah. at least there's that it was a, a very notice notable failure <laughs> <laughs> i also didn't realize at the time that mark was just straight up playing lauren michaels as the uh, evil uh, pharmacy executive well they're insisting that we cut our research outlay by 60 percent <laughs> Of course I told him to fuck off. Good for you, Don. But then out loud I said I'd consider it. Of course, Don. Exactly the right thing to do. Play with him. So where are we with that, Marv? With what, Don? Our restructuring plan. You mean the thing that you just mentioned just now? Yeah. Oh, we're on top of that, Don. Good. Look, are we ever going to get the big table in here, or do I have to go out and cut down that fucking tree myself? I'll get right on that. Yeah, yeah. please. Okay, number one. Yeah, Mark was playing him in our in our movie, and uh, Mike Mike was playing him in Austin Powers, and uh, and uh, I still contend that Steve Martin was playing Lauren in The Spanish Prisoner. Um, <laughs> oh yeah. Um, but I've never confirmed that with Steve Martin, but. Uh, but Lauren, I mean, Lauren's, Lauren has such an idiosyncratic speech pattern. 
Uh, he's like, you know, like Cary Grant, he invented his own accent. <laughs> did you he, know? uh, did he have any reaction at all to, uh, to that portrayal in, in your film? Um, not that I'm aware of. I mean, yeah. I mean, he could have stopped us, Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and he hasn't, you know, and in the reboot, you know, Mark's doing it again, you know, and Lauren, Lauren has, uh, has been very, has been very supportive of it. So. Yeah. I, I liked in the, in the documentary, I think it's described as a comedy about depression made by depressed comedians. Does that ring true to you? Yeah. Oh yes. And yeah. Well, and, and at the time I kept, I kept saying, uh, criticizing and saying, really a bunch of guys who do a ton of drugs are going to make an anti-drug movie. <laughs> <laughs> it felt hypocritical in some way. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I said, I, I said, is there somebody in the group that isn't you know, uh, you know, self, uh, what do they call it? Uh, self-medicating self-medicating <laughs> is cause I, if there is, I'm not aware of them. Yeah. Um, and there was obviously a lot of behind the scenes drama with that film. Um, the other guys actually sued you at one point. Is that right? Mm, I don't remember that ever happening, but, uh, they, I, they threatened, they, they threatened to sue you. Threatened. Yeah. Because you didn't, didn't want to go through with it? I didn't want, no, I didn't want to be in it. I was, I didn't want to be around them. I was fed up. Yeah. And, uh, no, I mean, I actually, I only, and I, and I, and I actually didn't have a contract to be in the movie. Uh, it was only when I was told the Paramount hated it and they weren't going to make it. Yeah. Uh, that all that of a sudden. Manager said, <laughs> well, the, no, my manager said, the manager, our manager said, look, if you don't, if you don't sign the contracts, no one gets paid for writing. And, and then, so I said, oh, okay, I'll sign it so everyone can get paid. And then, and then Paramount, and then Lauren talked Paramount into making it. So you didn't, you didn't even think it was going to happen. You thought they were just going to pay you to kind of go away. Yeah. Oh yeah. Cause, uh, yeah, this, what I was being told was that Paramount hated the script and, and they weren't very fond of us. <laughs> you know? And yet somehow um, Lauren made it happen. That's the power of Lauren. That's his, that's his great gift, you know? Um, what was it? I mean, you said you, you couldn't stand to be around the guys anymore. What, what was it, uh, what was happening at that time that made you feel that way? Well, we talk about in the documentary that they tried to block me from doing the uh, news radio pilot, uh, at a, you know, when I was, my wife was pregnant with our second child, you know, and the money was running out. They, they tried to block you from doing it so that you would do the movie and continue. No, no, I had nothing to do with the movie. Okay. This was, it, it was, there was no movie at the time. It was, it was, uh. They wanted to block me because there was one show in our live tour that would conflict with the pilot shoot. Oh God! And I and uh, and I I want asked them to reschedule the show, and I said I would take out a full page ad in uh, New York Times promoting the the change of date, and I would buy and I would buy any tickets returned. And that was that. That wasn't enough. And they all said no. Uh, you're you're obligated to this tour. You should turn down the pilot. Do you think that was out of jealousy for the this opportunity that you were getting on your own after you know being part of this group for so long i'm sure that's part of it you know yeah part of it and just part of the nature of the troop really i mean that was the I, even then you probably didn't even know how big of an opportunity news radio was um but i mean it was a chance for you to be the star of a of a network sitcom in the united states yeah. which ended up you know running for several seasons so did you yeah. did you well, realize one, one with Oh, I knew it as well. It was being directed by Jimmy Burroughs, for one yeah. thing. So that's that's a good you know, sign right there. He's a legend. Yeah, and it's written by Paul Sims, who came from Larry Sanders, and it was the, the best pilot script I'd ever seen. And it was and it was co-starring Phil Hartman, 
you know, there was a lot of reasons to I mean, be optimistic. The, the whole the whole cast was was pretty was pretty incredible. I mean, he was the probably the biggest uh, deal at that time. But then the other people who went on to to become big as well. Um, you know, at the same time, it was a did it feel like doing this broader sitcom, even though it is really smart and funny? Did it feel like going in a different direction, doing something really different from the types of sort of more alternative sketches that that you guys were doing? Um, not, it felt very similar to me. It was like walking into from one uh, very, it was like walking from one fun but very dysfunctional endeavor <laughs> into another fun but very dysfunctional de- endeavor. You know, it was like when we were making news radio, we kind of all had this weird feeling like we were the we were the punks on NBC. You know, we were we were the uh, we were the ones that weren't that were going against the grain of the network. Yeah. Um, just creatively or how did that manifest? Yeah. Cre- creatively. Yeah. Like whenever there was a mandated thing that the show was supposed to do, uh, you know, like I think there was one night, like one time NBC wanted to do a, uh, like a, a there was remember the four weddings in a funeral movie. Is that what it was called? <laughs> uh, they want, it was a hit. So they wanted to do a night of four weddings in a funeral on, oh, wow. uh, <laughs> on, and so that we were, we got the funeral. And so, you know, Paul Sims came up with the idea of writing a, an episode around a rat funeral where, <laughs> you know, it's not, not what NBC had in mind. No, but that's the way, you know, Paul would, Paul would always find kind of a, kind of a subversive take on whatever they demanded. Um, well, you definitely had a lot of outsized characters on that show. Um, you know, Andy Dick, uh, and Joe Rogan, um, who both have gone on to do some interesting things. Morning boss, man. Hey, morning, Joe. It's a big day tomorrow, huh? You stoked? What? Stoked. It's a slang expression. It means excited? Yeah, thanks, Joe. But uh, stoked about what? Tomorrow. It's a big day. Yeah, but... Uh, big day tomorrow, huh? Uh, yeah, so I hear. Uh, you nervous? Well, actually, I'm not sure what's so big about the... I get uh, so nervous before the big day. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Well, what's so big about the... No, uh, I don't even want to talk about it. It makes me too nervous. <laughs> Here's your phone sheet, boss. Oh, thank you, Beth. Now, Beth, what, what day is tomorrow? April 19th. And what's so special about that? That's a big day, Dave. Yeah, but what is... Uh... Morning, Chief. Morning, Bill. Uh, big day tomorrow, huh? What's so big about it? <laughs> you know, it's tomorrow. You know, it's the big day tomorrow. The, uh, you know, the, the big day, you know, April 19th. Big. You're going to have to give me a little more to go on here. Actually, Bill, I have no idea. I was hoping you might be able to help me out with... Hey, you're right. Tomorrow is the big day. Thanks for... <laughs> what was it like to uh, to to work with each of them at the time? Well, it was great because, uh, I mean, you know, I mean, obviously Andy wasn't as crazy as he is now, sadly. Uh, he was a little more under control, but he was, you know, he was still Andy Dick back then. So he was, he was a weird guy, uh, but brilliantly funny. And the weird thing was at first Joe and Andy didn't get on at all well. They were they were, you know, Andy would would be really mad that Joe was making fun of him all the time. Uh but it turned out like that like Joe became Andy's biggest fan. Um yeah, like Joe could not get through a scene with Andy. Like <laughs> Joe Joe would crack up every time he had to do a scene with Andy. It would it'd always be like have to do multiple takes just just so Joe could hold it together and he just like loved loved Andy, you know. Um, and so, you know, so the, it was just every, every, you know, it really became like with everybody it was, it became a real family kind of environment, you know, and not just the cast, the, the writers and the crew too. It was like, there were no, there were no, 
again, it's kind of back back to like the idea of, you know, with kids in the hall where we didn't like any dividing lines. And in news radio, we had no dividing lines between anyone that worked on the show. Like, you know. You, I assume, couldn't have imagined uh, that Joe Rogan were, would end up where he is today as the, you know, most powerful broadcaster in the in the country. I I know it's amazing, uh, and and yeah, and, and obviously you know there's some stuff Joe 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 believes that I totally disagree with, but uh, I mean there was a great uh, was it a New Yorker article about uh, about Joe? I think it was I think it was New Yorker. It was a lengthy article saying uh, people who hate Joe have never watched Joe. Uh, and Do you think he kind of gets setting. a gets a bad rap or? Well, you can hate some of the stuff if you want, but it's the fact that they don't see the full scope of what he's doing on that show, which is pretty remarkable. Like, you know, to me, it's like he has Nobel Prize winning physicists on, and he talks to them for three hours about physics. You <laughs> which know, and which has, is not the which is not what people think of when they when they think of his show, I guess. No, and it's a good, probably a good thirty per thirty forty percent of his show is having these like thought leaders on, you know. Like like philosophers and you know and and authors and uh, you know uh, scientists are like a huge chunk of of who he interviews because he's uh, I always said Joe's like the most curious human being I've ever met. Yeah, was he was he always like that? Yeah, yeah, and he always had his and he also always had his like conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, as a was, part of him too. He was talking and, about and that would, back in news radio days. Yeah, and we would you know and he and I would uh, argue about those things you know. Uh, but he and I, we, uh, back then, but then he and I both shared, uh, an avid interest in like the UFO phenomenon. Back yeah. Then, I was going to say you, you found some, some common ground on that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, I disagreed with him on some stuff. Like I didn't think aliens built the pyramids. Uh, <laughs> you know, as I, as I told him at the time, I said, I would believe you if there was one electric light bulb in there, <laughs> you know, if there was, if there was anything in there that wasn't stone age technology, I would believe you. Um, I know you you talked to him about um, Phil Hartman and and working with him and kind of the the warning signs that you saw that that something bad could happen. What was what was that experience like for you of watching you know everything that went down with Phil, which is um, also so tragic. Well, it was it was very frightening. It was fright at the time. Um, I mean, I I'm I'm a Canadian and I'm a liberal, so I'm I'm obviously uh, have a real problem with guns. Uh, and I would, yeah, and I would definitely constantly, I would definitely like cite statistics to Phil about, you know, about the dangers of having guns in your home. Um, you know, and, and, and he wasn't alone in having a bad marriage at the time. I mean, there were, that was rampant on, in news radio. Um, <laughs> I think just about everybody got divorced on that show, except, you know, so, um, but yeah, it was the yeah, and, and and of course when it, you know when it happened, it was devastating. No, he was he was such a talent, and you know, such a in the history of, of sketch, especially I think such a such a titan of that form. Yeah, no, he was he had you know uh, my 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 oh sorry my AirPod is not he's <laughs> not is not cooperating today. Uh, he had he had like what Kevin McDonald and I was called perfect comedy pitch, you know. Uh, like you knew that what if if there were you know you know if a sketch had like twenty possible laughs in it, Phil would get all twenty. Yeah, you know, <laughs> he would not miss a laugh at all. You know, like and most comedians can't do that. Coming up, Dave talks about what it was like to reunite with the kids in the hall for another season. 
and why he hopes they might just keep making comedy together until one of them dies. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to my conversations with other sketch comedy icons like John Cleese, Martin Short, and David Cross, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Dave Fulton. The return of, of Kids in the Hall this past year, um, I thought was was really impressive. And just the fact that you that you were able to pick up so well right where you where you left off um even just hearing the the theme music and seeing the 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 new black and white footage of you guys in the in the opening was exciting um what was it like to to come back to that i know you've kind of done things on and off over the years and and specials and tours but this felt like a a much bigger undertaking in a lot of ways uh yeah well it was definitely a uh uh, I, I returned to something that we didn't think we, for a long time, we didn't think we'd ever go back to doing like sketches on TV. In fact, that's why we did a mini, we did a mini series uh, called like, death comes to town because we could, at, because at that point we were thinking, well, well, we can't, we don't want to just compete with our old stuff. Let's, let's do something different. Um, and, uh, but then after that, we started doing tours where we were writing all new material for these tours, um, you know, because we got bored with doing, the the greatest hit shows so we started writing all new doing you know i think we did one tour where we didn't do any old sketches at all uh and and we went wow these sketches are as good as the old stuff you know and that kind of started us down the road to doing this series and then we thought oh we still we're still writing some really interesting stuff you know and we're still making each other laugh so uh so it was, so we that gave us the i guess the courage to try and to try and uh go back to it mm-hmm 
I mean, one big difference now between when you guys, from when you guys were doing it originally, is people can share some of this stuff online and and put sketches up on you know YouTube and all of that. Are there yeah. are there ones that you've seen really connect with people in a way that that was exciting or, or surprising? Definitely the surprising and 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 I guess exciting too was the uh, the Doomsday DJ. Oh yeah, uh, that's a great one. There is the response to that was way. Uh, I mean, I. I'd say it's probably, I mean, it's the thing I've heard the most about from the shows. Can you, can you describe uh, that for people who maybe haven't oh, seen it? Oh, I haven't seen it. Well, first off, that's unlikely that anyone hasn't seen it. Right. Uh, yeah. Cause it's I huge. Mean, I mean, yeah, we're, a, we're a cult. <laughs> it's a, it's a sketch about, uh, uh, about a morning DJ, uh, in a subterranean bunker, uh, who is broadcasting to, uh, whatever might be left of humanity after, a. a uh, an attack uh, that I think I described as uh, described as like a DNA bombs started dropping. So I think I think it was likely an alien attack. Um, and uh, turning out, you know, whoever survived was basically horribly mu- mutated. And so he's hiding in his basement and he's just going through the motions of broadcasting a radio show to keep himself sane. Uh, you know, but the only the only music he has left is the uh, is the one sing is the one single by Melanie called uh, brand new key and so he just keeps running the same single over and over and over again and then throwing to the weather and you know and in between well the song's playing just sort of lapsing into deep depression good morning that was melanie and brand new key and this is your friendly neighborhood dj mike motormouth mulcahy on kroc the crocodile rolling out the rock to whoever's left in whatever's left of the greater metropolitan area The weather today is mostly lethal, so stay indoors. And by indoors, we mean underground in a secure bunker or an abandoned mine. Well, enough chitter-chatter, let's get at her. This is Motormouth in the morning. Ready or not, here I rock. There was something somehow relatable about that for everyone who's uh, been stuck inside a bit over the past few years. Yeah, I get it. it yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's, it, which I when when I wrote it, and even when we were making it, for, I got I was surprised at you know the extent to which like our our director Kelly Macon did a great job shooting it, and the art department was amazing um, on that. Like it was so much work went into it, and uh, and all the time we were doing it, I kept thinking this is likely going to fail. <laughs> is, I said, "There's a good chance we're going to wind up cutting this out of the show." But you you're know, glad you I didn't. Kept, yeah, no, but I, I just kept thinking, I can't, I, you know, I might. It seemed crazy that, you know, and I performed the sketch once at a variety show that my wife put on in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, I re- re- performed it as a single piece, um, which I think you can get away with on stage, um, and and it did well. But I kept thinking, yeah, I think this is something I like, but I don't know if anyone else is going to like it because <laughs> it's a lot of it is just me sitting there. <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. Um, do you feel like, you know, given all of the tensions that you had within the group over the years, did that, did that all come back? Has it, has it gone away with age? Is it, is it the same? Is it different? How do you, how did it feel in coming back this time? It's less volatile and less protracted, the tensions and the, and the, and the, uh, the angers that erupt, but I, yeah. Uh, but I don't think, I don't think it'll ever fully go away because it's the, the nature of the, 
of who we are as individuals. <laughs> uh, we're not we're not easy to get along with. Yeah, it's hard to have five very strong personalities all uh, working together. Yes, and we and we've never worked out any kind of a democratic uh, way of settling disputes. And no, really how, how, just, how does it happen? How do you settle disputes? Just whoever's willing to fight the longest wins. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, it's all, a good system. All, all, yeah. Um, and uh, so it's, it's, you know, it's exhausting. as I said, it's less, definitely less volatile. And I think there's more of an acknowledgement of, of, of the affection between us all now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Did making this uh, season make you want to do more and, and work together more moving forward? Yeah. I mean, I think regardless of what happens with the series, I think there's going to be more kids in the hall stuff uh, down the road, just because it was, we were all, we're all really proud of the show we made, you know, and, and delighted with the, you know, the response from the audience and, you know, and from, and from the, the critical response has been uh, overwhelming. Yeah. Well, I think it's pretty incredible that you're still able to to do this and, and work together um, and that, you know, all five of you are still in, um, you know, after all these years. Yeah. And still alive. Yeah. I mean, that's that not going to go on much I, I wasn't going to say that, but. Uh... <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, let's face it. There's, it's a ticking, it's a ticking clock at this point. <laughs> you know, we're all moving into our 60s. So, uh, so, it's, you know, you know, it's the, the odds are good that one of us won't be around much longer. Well, on that uh, dark note, I want to move on to our uh, our segment, the first laugh, um, where we're going to look back oh, at, right. at some uh, some memories from from your life and career around comedy. Um, going oh, right. all the way back, uh, what's the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid, or or one of the first that you can remember? Um, probably one of the first was Jerry Lewis. To be honest, it was prob- Jerry Lewis. Probably it was one of the first things I saw as a kid that really made me laugh. Yeah. Do you remember uh, what it was about, about Jerry Lewis that, that got you? Just, uh, I loved his physical comedy. I used to like, I would watch, I'd watch a Jerry Lewis movie and then I would go to school and try to recreate his pratfalls. You know, I used to do, I used to do like tumbles down flights of stairs, you know, as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, my next question is, do you remember the first time you knew, you knew you were funny and you could make other people laugh? So maybe it was doing those, uh, those kind it of falls. Been, yeah. It would have been in like junior kindergarten. Yeah. yeah. You were already making people laugh then? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> well, yeah, that, I guess, yeah, I'm just serious. The other, the other big, probably early first laugh is probably Bugs Bunny too. I gotta give Bugs Bunny credit. Yeah. <laughs> More physical comedy. But, but my, oh, but I should say my parents back, like I'm going back to like 1969, uh, when I was six years old, my parents used, but comedy was always big in our household. Uh, but my parents used to keep us up late to watch Python. Yeah, well, that's that's uh, that was pretty uh, so I, <laughs> um, yeah. influential then. Yeah, so I didn't really understand Python at the time. I loved all the animation and I loved some of the the crazy visuals gags, you know. Um, but I was definitely started watching Python when I was like six years old. Wow. Yeah. Do you remember the very first time you performed comedy on stage? I, I imagine it was improv um, and how it went and and what it was like for you. Um. Um, aside from doing things in school, uh, yeah, I think the first time I performed on stage was at uh, Yuck Yuck's stand-up club in in Toronto, and I, you know, a friend of mine had suggested you sh- that I should try doing stand-up, and I thought, oh, I'd never thought of it, <laughs> so I wrote, so I wrote like ten minutes of material and went down to uh, Yuck Yuck's, and uh, and uh, and I and I killed, I did great, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I had a bunch of friends from high school there and my dad was there 
And uh, yeah, I think my, you know, I think my, I wrote my first monologue was mostly about my loss of virginity, which uh, had, had happened. Do you remember any, do you remember any of the jokes? Uh, I do. I remember uh, the opening of it. Um, Cause it was I, literally, I, this was probably within six months of me losing my virginity that I did this. <laughs> <laughs> I was 17. Um, it, it was said, I guess just talked about, talked about losing my virginity. And I said, uh, you know, it, it, it did not go well. I said, I don't know how to, I don't know how to say this, uh, politely, but, um, well, I've never been very good at threading a needle either. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good joke. Yeah. You know, I think I said, but you know, they say where there's a will, there's a way. But fortunately, by the time I had found the way, I totally lost the will. <laughs> and those are those are the first two jokes of my stand-up routine. Do you have a audition story uh, from your career that stands out, either because it went uh, particularly well or particularly poorly? I think one of the greatest auditions I ever did was for the American Office. Yeah, I auditioned for the Steve Carell part. Uh, in the office and literally, and I usually don't feel good after an audition. I usually feel just sort of dirty and disappointed in myself. Uh, but after this one, I was like flying. I thought, Oh my God, I was so good. I was the best I've ever been. I was so <laughs> funny. I'm so perfect for this. Uh, cut to me hearing they hired who, who the <laughs> hell is Steve Carell? Yeah. There's a lot of sliding doors with that show. Cause it was a uh, Bob Odenkirk was also one of the, the main people up for that role. Yeah. I, uh, I was startled when I didn't get that one. Yeah. Um, was it, was it, uh, how far did you get? Did you just do one, uh, audition or do you, do you remember, did you come back to like, I can't, I, I can't up with remember. Other people I mean, or? so I did the audition for Greg Daniels and I can't remember. Uh, yeah, I think, I think out of respect, I just sort of went straight to Greg at that time. <laughs> uh, so there was no callback or anything, but I definitely thought, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in on this. Yeah. And then you know? when it, when it became what it became, you probably really <laughs> regretted not getting that one. Oh my God. Yes. Oh yes. I mean, uh, and I could have saved the world from Steve Carell. Yeah. Oh, what that a monster, monster that guy is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you have a story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now, but really wasn't funny when it happened? Um, I don't know. I think I probably laughed at the time. <laughs> 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 I don't, I, yeah, I can't think of any, there's very little. Yeah. that I, I mean, I remember when Kevin Scott and I opened for Buddy Greco uh, on New Year's Eve and at the uh, at the Imperial Room in Toronto, and and we bombed so badly that and it was literally like we thought, oh, we were opening for Buddy Greco, and it, Mark and Bruce were, were were doing Saturday Night Live at that time. Uh, although they actually both were flew up, and Mark actually came to the show. Um, so we were doing some kids in the hall sketches to open, for, and we thought, well, it's a New Year's Eve show. I guess we'll probably go on around you know nine o'clock you know, and then, you know, then buddy will go on and take them through to midnight, but no, the show started at midnight. <laughs> the audience was drinking and eating for hours. Uh, and then basically Some it was literally like planning. everybody, 10, nine, eight, seven, six, the kids in the hall, happy new year. And we'd walk out and the, and we started doing these weird, uh, interactive sketches with the audience that they just hated. Yeah. And <laughs> I think we, I think we got about 10 minutes into our set when the house, Manager came out with a microphone and like came out and took a microphone away from Kevin and said, let's hear it for the kids in the hall. They're, they <laughs> yeah. had some trouble here tonight, but they, I bet we're going to see a lot of them in the future. <laughs> but you were able to, but you and were able to laugh off, about we, it uh, after that. Oh yeah. Well, well after, well, we got off stage and the house booker and, and buddy uh, Greco's manager were blocking the only exit from the backstage area, <laughs> yelling at each other. 
you know, uh, Buddy's agent's going, but Mr. Greco expects a proper opening act. This is outrageous. <laughs> so we couldn't get out of the room. <laughs> but it was, yeah, but it was, yeah. But I think even, you know, at the time I thought, oh, well. I mean, yeah, later that, later that night I actually got on the elevator and Buddy Greco was on the elevator in the hotel. And we were like, like almost nose to nose in this elevator. And I just went, well, apparently, and apparently Buddy bombed after us. Oh, we yeah, he, had, he, so had, a, he had a terrible lead in. Yeah. So we were nose to nose and I just sort of said, well, I guess we really warmed him up for you, huh, buddy? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do you have a a story about the first time you met one of your comedy heroes, uh, someone who you you really looked up to in comedy and what it was like to to meet them for the first time? Um, Well, I met I remember meeting uh, Bob Newhart um, at the Aspen Comedy Festival, and I was introduced to him by another one of my comedy heroes, David Steinberg. Uh, who directed my movie, The Wrong Guy. Um, and so so David was a hero of mine growing up. And then and we were at Aspen and uh, and Bob Newhart was there being honored. And uh, David said, can we, do, we want to come, come meet Bob. So that was, so I remember going to meet Bob there and I was just really, just could barely talk. And I was so excited to meet him. Um, and, but he was so, really delightful and friendly and nice. And then, uh, you know, years later, I got to work with him on Hot in Cleveland uh, where he played, he played my dad. That must have been special. It was nice because there was a, I remember there was, I think it was an uh, Entertainment Weekly magazine or some, or premiere, I can't remember which now, at one point had referred to me as the heir apparent to Bob Newhart. <laughs> and, and I, you know, which I was thrilled by. And when I, uh, when I, when, when I did meet Bob, actually when I met him in Aspen, I said, Mr. Newhart, it's a great thrill to meet you. And I just want to let you know, I have been ripping you off outrageously for my entire career. <laughs> Finally, I like to give my guests a chance to shout out any comedy that is making them laugh right now. Um, is there anything uh, that you've seen recently that, that really made you laugh that you want to uh, recommend or, or, uh, oh, I do. or well, tell I, people I about? Just, I've just been watching Nathan Fielder's, Fielder's oh, uh, yeah, the show, rehearsal. Uh, the rehearsal, which I think is brilliant. It's yeah, it's so it's so I, well I done. I laugh, I laugh out loud watching that more than than most things these days. I, it's fantastic, and yeah, it was weird. And I actually had had dinner with Nathan just before he left LA to go make it. Yeah. Oh, very cool. So he was, yeah. So I didn't, I, mean, I didn't really know. He said he was just, he said he was going off to do the show, and yeah, you, know, you had no really idea what it was going to be. Yeah. But uh, he's a really interesting it's pretty guy. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's an, uh, yeah, it's an amazing, an amazing uh, show to watch. I think everyone should enjoy it. Definitely. Um, well, thank you so much for doing this. I've enjoyed uh, watching you uh, so much over the years. And uh, this was a real pleasure to get to talk to you. Well, it's a pleasure talking to you too. Yeah. Well, that was really fun. So thanks again to Dave Foley for being my guest on this week's show. You can stream the newest season of Kids in the Hall, along with the great two-part documentary Comedy Punks, on Amazon Prime Video now. And new episodes of Dark Side of Comedy air Tuesday nights at 9 p.m. on Vice TV. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, And you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. 
Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.